0: Well, good morning, and um, if you'd like to open your Bibles again on page 1,128, we'll be uh, referring to that as we go through. Romans chapter 1. And let's uh, begin with a prayer, shall we? Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak to us through it. We pray that our hearts and our minds may be prepared to hear your voice and to obey it. Amen. Well, uh, Julius Caesar was perhaps the most um, uh, uh, famous of the Roman emperors. And although, according to the uh, the political spin of the time, he was simply a, a mere public servant appointed by the state... He actually used uh, the laws of the time and votes in Senates to actually make himself so powerful that eventually they offered him the title of king um, because they thought he deserved it. But Julius Caesar, being uh, very political, uh, refused that title of king on more than one occasion. Nevertheless, it was Julius Caesar who said, "I'd rather be first in a village than second in." at Rome. I'd rather be first in a village than second at Rome. So although Julius may have refused the title of king for political reasons, there's no doubt that this man knew what he wanted. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to have absolute power. And being number one in the world at that time meant being number one, being first at Rome. And so it is in Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire, more than anywhere else in the world, that we see sheer, brute power would be known, felt, talked about, and lived out. So it's significant then that when Paul writes to the arguably the most important and most influential church in the world at that time, in the most important and influential city, there's one thing that he wants to make clear, and that is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is a king, not just a king for a day, bringing some excitement to a stable in the village of Bethlehem. He's not just the king of the Jews, causing a stir in Jerusalem. He's not even just the king of uh, the Roman Empire, but he's the king of the whole wide world forever. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then Paul is nothing compared to him. In fact, Paul says in verse 1, he says he is Christ's doulos, doulos being the Greek word that means servant or slave. And as Christ's slave, Paul is set apart for the gospel the good news of God. And if we want to know fulfilment and, tro- and total freedom, we also need to learn to be submission, uh, trusting submission to the gospel. Here in uh, the passage we got before us, in just four verses of the introductory greeting, Paul manages to tell us pretty much everything that we need to know about the Gospel. You could say it in one line like this. You could say, The Gospel of God, according to Scripture, about Jesus the King for everyone, leading to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. I'll say that again. The Gospel of God, according to Scripture, about Jesus the King for everyone, leading to the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name. So I could end the sermon there, really. Um, But like Paul, who went on for another 16 chapters, I shall also go on for a little bit. Don't worry. So I have three points. The first is the source of the gospel. The second is the substance of the gospel. And the third, the summons of the gospel of King Jesus. So let's look at these in turn. Firstly, the source of the gospel. Where does this gospel come from? Well, it doesn't come from Paul. You didn't need to tell the Romans anything about slavery. They were the masters of the slave trade. They knew that nothing comes from a slave apart from perhaps hard work, toil and sweat. No, this is not Paul's gospel. It does not come from him. This is the gospel of God. It comes directly from God above. Now, unlike unlike most of us, Paul was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. So when Paul had his Damascus Road conversion experience, God told Ananias to tell Paul that he was God's chosen instrument to carry God's name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And from on that point on, Paul was an apostle or ambassador for the gospel which came from God. Now we may not be apostles in the same sense that Paul was, but we're still called to respond to God's good news. That is, of course, what gospel means. It is God's good news. So, when we're at work or among friends and we're having a chat, do we tell them about human philosophy or the official policy of Holy Trinity Church or a nice idea that works for us? In other words, is this something that we can be proud of? Is it something that we've created? Do we have to be very, very clever to be servants of the gospel? Well, no, says Paul. In fact, Paul elsewhere says that God chose the foolish to shame the wise because we represent the gospel which comes from God in all its wonderful foolishness, humanly speaking. And in case you're unsure, Paul tells us in verse 2 that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures. Just imagine for a while that there's a new uh, Google application known as Google Prophets. And if you go to Google Prophet and you type in the words promise of saviour, scholars have worked out that there will be something like 320 results from the Old Testament alone. Humanly speaking, it's impossible that 320 of these results should all be fulfilled in one man. And yet we see right back at the beginning of human history in Genesis 3, God promises that there would be a man who would rescue humanity from the curse that the serpent had just put them under. Centuries later, God promises Abraham that one of his his descendants will be that man and that his family will become a blessing for the nations. And at that point, every other family in the whole wide world was ruled out of the running. It would be one of Abraham's brood who would finish off the power of evil in this world. And as the Old Testament progresses, more and more details are added to the prediction of the Saviour. So he will come from the people of Israel, he will come from the line of David and eventually Google Prophet zooms right down on a wise servant who does not speak but accepts his suffering. And it zooms in again and we see the soldiers gambling to see who might get what item of clothing. And we see a man with a pierced side and with open wounds and we see that that same man is praying, praying for those who are causing his suffering. It is so remarkable that those 320 prophetical gospel prophet results, Google prophet results, point to one man, Jesus Christ. What it all suggests is that God has been at work and speaking to us through the Old Testament and bringing to us an understanding of the gospel long before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. And what that means for us is that we also need to be servants of this same gospel, not a gospel of our own making, but the gospel of God according to Holy Scripture. The gospel is not something we can play with or tinker with. The gospel is something we are given and something we, not something we invent. We have an anchor for our faith, which is contained in God's Scripture. Therefore, it is a gospel that requires us to be humble. We must submit to its external authority, and accept that we have no hand in the answers that it gives, and no part to play in its creation. Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary that the world has ever known, put himself willingly under the authority of the gospel of God, and he did everything that he did through Jesus Christ, and for his name's sake, as we see in verse 5. Now, as servants of the gospel, we too promote God's gospel, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. The Moravian missionaries used as a slogan, something that actually appeared on an ancient Roman coin. Perhaps Julius Caesar saw it once. I think it might come later than Julius Caesar's, but who knows. An ox stands in the middle of the coin, between an altar on one side and a plough on the other. So if it goes one way, the ox is sacrificed to the gods. If it goes the other way, it is condemned to a lifetime of hard labour and servitude. And the caption below this picture reads ready for either Julius caesar may well have seen it because he said once it's easier to find men who are volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience see gospel work can often be servant doulos plow work it means plugging away with teaching the children leading the bible study groups preaching from obscure old testament books working on Bible translation, working with women uh, in, in Ghana and in other places. It might mean many, many years of hard work, but when it's God's good news, we dare not put it down. The source of the gospel is good, is God. And in many ways, the harder we work for the gospel, the more glory it brings to Christ and the more joy it brings to us true human freedom and fulfilment comes from submission to the Gospel. Which brings us to the substance of the Gospel, my second point. The first thing we notice is that the substance of the Gospel is not a religion. It's not Christianity. It is a person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, this is the Gospel of God, verse 3, regarding his Son. And then in verse 4, with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jeremy Clarkson one, once wrote that one of the reasons why Honda cars tend to be a bit more exciting than your average Japanese motor car is that there actually was a Mr. Honda, just as there was, actually was a Mr. Royce and a Mr. Ferrari. There never was a Mr. Nissan or a Mr. Toyota. In the same way, and this is a silly example, isn't it, but Christianity with Christ would be boring and irrelevant. Without Christ, would be boring and irrelevant. It certainly wouldn't be good news. Somebody once said that Christianity without Christ, without Christ, the only news from heaven is judgment. The good news of Christianity is Christ. And how easily we get this wrong. is one reason why we like to use the Christianity Explored course, because despite, despite its name, it's actually very good at introducing people to Christ by getting them to read Mark's Gospel and to ask themselves, who is this man, Jesus, who can heal the sick, calm the waves, and forgive sins? And here in Romans 1, Paul focuses on that very same vital question about Jesus. So firstly, in verse 3, we read about his humanity. Christ, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, Paul writes, It's a phrase which points to Christ's incarnation. It points us to Christ who humbled himself, Philippians 2 style, the the creed we used just before the sermon was from Philippians 2. Christ who came into the world as a man who shared in our temptations, our suffering and the decisions we have to make. It points to his humiliation at the hands of Pilate and the Roman soldiers and to his death on the cross. You see, as to his human nature, Jesus was 100% human. And yet he resisted temptation. He was faithful to God in everything that he did. And by his obedience, he became everything that Israel should have been. And everything that David should have been as Israel's king. And thus he earns the right to be called God's firstborn son. You can look that up later in Exodus chapter four and two Samuel seven. You see, in a sense, Jesus is our only example of what it means to be one hundred percent human, because true, true humanness is true humanness is found in trusting submission to God. Anything less than that is inhuman. This is why Jesus is fit to be our King, the Son of David. And so verse 3 leads us into verse 4 and the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see here, the resurrection declares him, Jesus, to be much more than a man. He is Son of God. He is the Christ, Messiah, the anointed King. He is our Lord, the ruler and heir of the whole world. He is Jesus, the divine king. Now, it's true that our understanding of Jesus is, tr- is totally transformed by verse 4. But not, as some people would have us believe, from son of David to son of God. In other words, he's not a man who is suddenly adopted by God as divine because he's made such a good effort at being a human. No, there's a clue in verse 4. He is transformed by the resurrection but the transformation is from Son of God in humiliation to Son of God in exaltation. He is, and always has been, 100% God. But now, after the resurrection, he is crowned the King of glory through the spirit of holiness in power in his resurrection. So what does this uh, theology mean for us? It means that there was a man who, by the way he lived, deserved to enjoy a perfect, wonderful relationship with God. He deserved to be God's firstborn son and live in perfectly harmony with his loving father. And yet that man willingly chose to spoil his perfect record and to take the guilt and the shame of our failure to live up to God's standard upon himself. Now, Caesar was famously murdered, wasn't he, by 23 stab wounds inflicted by members of his own Senate, who together collectively shared the guilt of his death. King Jesus was collectively murdered by the crowd who stood before Pilate and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now, we who have sinned all want to make ourselves king of our own lives, we are part of that crowd. It is our sin and our rebellion against God that sent him to his death. He became our sin and rebellion on our behalf. He bore our punishment, he died, and he endured separation from God. And yet it turns out that this man was actually God himself. And his resurrection opened the floodgates to a new spirit-filled era where all of us who put our trust and faith in him can know the very same power that raised Jesus to life, raising us to new life, free from guilt, free from shame, free to live a new life of holiness, free to repair broken relationships, free to live as God wants us to live. You see, that is true humanity. That is true freedom. That is the gospel of God regarding his son. If a teacher or policeman comes to you and says, now regarding your son, I think you'd expect some bad news, wouldn't you? But not so with God. Because when God comes to us and says, now regarding my son, it is all good news good news that we cannot afford to ignore. Which brings us to verse 5, and my final point, the summons of the Gospel. Verse 5 says, Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Notice first that this is an all-encompassing summons. It is for people from among all the Gentiles, literally from people from among all the nations. That means that the Gospel is for Spain, which is where Paul was trying to go when he wrote to the Romans. But the Gospel is also for Rome itself, and for Syria and Egypt. The Gospel is for the UK and China. It is for Japan, Russia, Holland, and Saudi Arabia. The Gospel is for all nations and all the people on earth. And why did Paul, uh, be, was Paul commissioned by God to go to all nations back then? Well, it's because the people were enslaved in superstition and works-based religions. And why does God send us to all nations now? Well, it's because the people are enslaved to superstition and works-based religions. No one anywhere has been known to live up to God's standards, no matter how hard. They have tried no matter how religious they have been unless they put their faith and their trust in Jesus you see you cannot just plop God if that is who Jesus was into the middle of human history and then do nothing about it if you believe that Jesus was God and died and rose again for you as the evidence I believe suggests then you have to respond meaningfully to that good news the gospel is not something that you can hear, understand and then tuck away in a drawer, a bit like your, your school certificates. No, the gospel by its very nature needs to be preached, acted upon, spoken, out, spoken about and lived out. An ongoing obedience is required for which we are equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit. The summons of the gospel is to the obedience that comes from faith. But before that ongoing obedience, there's a different type of obedience required. Paul says we have to be obedient to the call of the gospel. So in Acts 17, Paul tells the Athenians that God commands all people everywhere to repent. He requires that obedience. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and in Romans chapter 10, he refers to, the, he refers to those who don't believe as those who do not accept, literally, those who do not obey the gospel. Sometimes people misuse and misunderstand the doctrine of predestination and try to get off the hook by saying, well, I'm obviously not called. I'm obviously not chosen, so I don't need to believe. Scientists are hard at work trying to uh, discover the religious gene. And no doubt some will say, well, I don't believe because I don't have the right gene. But the Bible has none of that. The Bible says that all people everywhere are called to obediently accept the gospel. Hence, when C.S. Lewis describes his conversion in his autobiographical book, Surprised by Joy, he describes how for for many years he wrestled with his emotional, intellectual and philosophical objections to the gospel for many, many years. Before, he says finally in his words, he gave in and submitted to God and, and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Dejected and reluctant, but obedient to the summons of the gospel. See, somebody once described faith, F-A-I-T-H, as forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, then you too Need to be obedient to the gospel's call and to put your faith in Jesus, forsake all and trust in Him. When Lewis took that reluctant step, he discovered that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. You see, the source of the gospel is God, the substance is Jesus Christ, and the summons is that true humanness and true freedom are found in trusting obedience that comes through faith. And so I say to you, to all in Norwich this morning, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.